0: Welcome to History Frogcast, a production of the TCU History Department, where we put the life and times of horned frogs into their rightful place in world history.
1: I'm about that riff ram, bau liggity, liggity, zoo zoo, wah, wahoo, give them hell, TCU, riff ram, bau liggity, liggity.
2: Welcome to the TCU History Podcast, where we hope to take you on an inspiring journey through the incredible history of women in the military, from the early days of the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps, all the way up to modern day.
1: In this episode, we have the privilege of speaking with the insightful historian Beth Bailey, who will provide us with a deeper understanding of this fascinating history.
2: We'll also draw from the eye-opening book Creating G.I. Jane by Lisa Meyer to further enhance our discussion.
1: So join us on this incredible journey as we pay tribute to the brave women who've paved the way and continue to shatter boundaries in the military. This is Battling for Equality, Women in Uniform. Thank you for tuning in. My name is Diego Velazquez.
2: And I'm Chloe Mantle, your hosts. We're both proud students of Texas Christian University, and we're excited to share the compelling stories of women who've served in the military, highlighting their remarkable progress in the face of gender discrimination.
3: Hey, there goes one of those petticoat soldiers now. Yeah. My sister wants to join the WAX. What do you think of that? <laughs> She's crazy. What the devil's a woman want to be a soldier for? Just a waste of time. This is a man's war. What sort of jobs can they do?
1: What sort of jobs can we do? Take a look, mister. X-ray technicians. Inspectors of army meat. Teachers schooling our
0: soldiers. Waxer classification experts. Assignment interviewers.
3: So this is a man's war, is it? WACs are at work on every sort of army vehicle, doing every sort of motor transport job, testing walkie-talkies, testing radio tubes. Those are just a few of the jobs they do. There are 239 more. Hey, you two armchair generals on the porch, here's something more for you to think about. Listen, General Eisenhower said, in many jobs, WACs do the work of two men. The army needs and can use all it can get.
2: What you just heard is actually a WAC recruiting video called It's Your War Too and it was released for the purpose of challenging the negative perceptions of WAC and encouraging more women to join the ranks. This clip can hopefully put you in the state of mind of the time and help you as audiences so far removed from that time period understand what military recruitment used to look and feel like for women.
1: Throughout our nation's history, women have had to fight for their rights as well as for the right to fight abroad defending the freedom of their own country.
2: Today, we will unveil the evolution of women in the military since World War II and how history took them from whack to warriors with a more detailed lens here at our home of TCU. Female veterans attended TCU after the war through the GI Bill.
1: I wonder what things were like at TCU back then and what their time was like at TCU. Like, they probably had a hard time adjusting to civilian life here. As much as I love TCU, there's a chance they may not have enjoyed it as much. I've also read statistics saying that women attending college on the GI Bill were unlikely to graduate, or less likely to graduate than most women that attended college. Do we know if they graduated?
2: There's actually a Horned Frogs at War article that talks about four of them. Their names were Lucille Hawkins, Mary Edna Welk, Isabel Lenore McAllister, and Myrtle Mcleroy Maxwell. None of them graduated, and according to the article, they did have a hard time readjusting. It reads, Research in TCU's Special Collections provides little on their military or college experience. Still, one thing is clear. They struggled to readjust to civilian life as women who had challenged social norms and TCU did not have organizations to support female veterans specifically. Mary Edna Welk joined the TCU American Legion Veterans Organization, but she was the only woman involved in 1946, which shocked TCU students who had more traditional views of gender. These women wished to be back in the army and struggled to settle into college.
1: It is really astounding to judge this from our own perspective, and I can imagine other students not creating the best environment for them since they were so different culturally. It's not surprising that other TCU students were shocked by the progressiveness and gender roles.
2: Well, one of the biggest challenges for women joining the military was the perceptions that they would be challenging. The role of women in the military was unique because of their gender and societal perceptions of what constituted military service and where women fit in the military.
1: That reminds me of her interview with Professor Beth Bailey and what we read in her article, A Higher Moral Character, Respectability, and the Women's Army Corps.
2: Yeah, she spoke about how the uniqueness of women's roles in the military and in the WAC during World War II can be explored through examining gender and societal perceptions of femininity and masculinity.
1: We asked Bailey if she could provide an overview of how the role of women in the U.S. military has evolved since World War II, and she had this to say.
0: Women had to struggle for the right to serve in uniform in World War II. That uh, There was a great deal of resistance to forming um, women's corps, which were mostly initially auxiliary corps, serving with rather than in the U.S. military. Um, in 1948, women were made an official permanent part of the U.S. military. Uh, we we pay a lot of attention to President Truman's executive order that laid the way for desegregating the U.S. military racially, but we don't pay as much attention to the fact that it was also in 1948 that women were accorded permanent official status in the military. Um, and we have gone from women having Extraordinary limits on their service Uh, until 1967. Women were restricted to 2% or less of military members in the United States. They couldn't command men. They couldn't have a permanent rank over um, what uh, in the Army would be lieutenant colonel. Um, They were discharged if they became pregnant. Uh, They had different standards for admission. Uh, So there's been an enormous amount of change in women's service since World War II, and today women make up about 16% of the U.S. military, still relatively small, considering that women are more than half the population, Um, but uh, can fill any role that they're qualified to fill in the U.S. military and are an essential part of the U.S. armed forces.
1: What do you think have been some key factors that have led to the So the increased involvement of women in the military.
0: Women became a greater part of the U.S. military largely because the military needed them. That's what happened in World War II. Uh, Despite the resistance, uh, it was all hands on deck. And while women were not assigned to combat units, um, maybe obviously, uh, they did take a lot of roles that, quote, you know, released a man to fight. When the united states moved from a conscription-based force to an all-volunteer force in 1973 the end of the vietnam war when the military was probably at the lowest point in its reputation among the american public it was having to recruit something the army only was trying to, having to recruit something like 25 or 30,000 people a month um, now they're failing uh, to recruit 65,000 people a year. So it gives you some sense for how hard that was. And they looked and they said, well, you know, one of the ways we can make those numbers, one of the ways we can fill those boots is by starting to recruit women. And that was a big change. But it coincided with the women's movement. It coincided with women claiming greater public roles in American society. And um also saying that if, you know many many women were saying if this is service is uh expected from men uh, you know why shouldn't it be expected from women why shouldn't women contribute to the nation as men do um and women's roles expanded as they started to admit more women they started to use women in a greater range of capacities and started recruiting women not just to do clerical work or communications work or medical work, but to do things like fix trucks, um, and because that's what they needed. And so women's role expanded in part because of military needs and in part because women say, you know, we are capable of doing these tasks, and we um, are. Many women said we're committed to serving our country. So it was it was a parallel set of changes.
1: It's interesting to me that necessity pushed the military to break cultural boundaries so much. If utility were the military's only concern, there is no reason why they wouldn't allow women to be involved in any activity based on their usefulness. It seems to me that societal perceptions and conservative beliefs are the biggest force behind gender discrimination. And even though opinions are not tangible, I'm sure the pressure these women felt at the time was probably overwhelming.
2: For sure, and it was not just the media scrutiny and pressure from society. They actually had to go through a system that was not prepared for them. Everything was new, and I can only imagine the courage it must have taken, the true and profound desire one must have to serve their country and to do so even when everyone is telling you not to.
1: Yeah, I wish we could speak personally with somebody that was there during all of this because reading about it is never the same.
2: Well, we can at least hear from the first-hand experience of a working woman in the military sphere from WAC, veteran Thelma Carden.
3: For some, joining the service was a chance to relocate. Thelma Carden, formerly Sherman, was a 21-year-old native of Chelsea, Massachusetts, who joined the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps in November of 1942.
0: The training was fantastic. I, I it, put me on my shoulders, told me what to do. I took everything in, what they had. And you, you didn't get uh, your, your uh, like a corporal sergeant, you had to earn it. And they tested you on that every month in order to get more money. And I was getting $78 a month.
3: Cardin trained at the WAC base located at Fort Des Moines and earned the rank of technical sergeant the training facility was the first of its kind for women in the United States. Because women were not allowed to be involved in combat, the WACs took stateside and foreign headquarters jobs that allowed men to fight the battles. Cardin spent the duration of her service in Des Moines as a military policewoman.
0: I was so proud to be in the parade grounds at the Fort Des Moines. Oh, be- just beautiful, everything.
3: From the barracks on the Drake University campus, Carden would patrol the city of Des Moines with one other WAC, armed with nothing more than a flashlight and limited training in hand-to-hand combat.
1: It was nice to be able to hear about how members of WAC took stateside and foreign headquartered jobs instead. A major point concerning women's role in the military was about how they would be able to help if they couldn't serve on the front lines. So this video does give us a more detailed perspective of that.
2: Yes, and we know that for many women, like Thelma, enlisting in the WAC presented an opportunity for gaining valuable education and experience that otherwise may not have been available to them. While patriotism played a role behind the reasoning for why women wanted to join the WAC, educational and experiential growth were also a powerful motivator. Enrollment offered women a chance to break free from traditional gender roles that confined them to their homes and contribute to the war effort in more significant ways.
1: Well that is fascinating and it really shows us just how much some women really wanted to break free from traditional gender rules.
2: Now that we've explored the incredible journey of women in the military during the WAC era, let's fast forward to the present day and see how these pioneering women paved the way for change in the military and what challenges they face in the modern day.
1: The history of their service and sacrifice has laid a foundation for the evolving landscape of gender inclusivity in our armed forces. However, while much progress has been made, there are still areas that have yet to catch up in terms of truly ensuring fair and equal treatment for all military members. Could you elaborate on how these, I mean, how the the US military's regulation of sexual behavior have evolved over time and what their impact has been on military culture?
0: In 19, I can talk primarily about the army, but it's, it's overall, um, separate women's corps existed until the mid to late 1970s. The Women's Army Corps was dissolved in 1978. Um, Women were admitted to the US military academies officially in 1976. So, you know, it's relatively recent. Um, And with the dissolution of a separate corps, there's the end to the possibility of having different kinds of criteria. it wasn't until the, the early to mid-1970s that that women got the same kind of benefits for their dependents that men got. So up until the 70s, there was a real sense of women being in a very separate category of military service than men. Um, and, and sex was a piece of that difference. Women can get pregnant as a class. Uh, that calls for different kinds of regulations and accommodation. Um, what does a someone in uniform who becomes pregnant need and deserve? That matters. Women are often understood as um, being an interruption to unit cohesion because of sexual tension. That's something that women have had to fight about. Fight over, fight to get past, both individually and in terms of the ways in which policy is crafted. Women have been subject to high rates of sexual assault and harassment in the US military. Men have been subject to sexual harassment and assault as well, but it's a much higher percentage of women being harassed or attacked by fellow male service members. Um, That is something that needs to be addressed. Women, are experienced post-traumatic stress and trauma in ways that are linked sometimes to sexual assault in ways that are different from that of men Um, those gender differences need to be addressed so there's always the complicated balancing act between treating all members of the U.S. military uniformly and equally and figuring out what specific factors have disparate or different impacts on different classes of people in the service Um, and so it's not so much now about managing sexual behavior as it is thinking about the implications of um, you know having having women serving and what's different about women's potential service than men's and how to accommodate that so they can do the best job possible
1: and how do you think that that these differences or issues can or should be addressed
0: military leaders and civilian leaders have been struggling with some of these questions for a long time um you know looking at the programs on sexual harassment and assault uh, they often look really good on paper um they haven't worked um there's been the move to to take the um reporting and prosecution out of the chain of command and we'll see how that goes Uh, that's something but, but what what we haven't seen is a situation that really holds commanders accountable to what's happening under their command, the way there was when there was a great deal of racial crisis in the late 60s and early 1970s. Um, I don't have all the answers by any means, and I don't think that anybody does. Um, but I think that to some extent, we've essentialized what it means to be a woman too much. We have overplayed physical difference more than we need to, um, and that people are trying to come to terms with the end of the combat exclusion um, and with the super problem of the recruiting crisis across the board in the U.S. military right now, um, what it means to have only one in six members of the U.S. military be female. If, if we need to recruit more people, um, that's one of the places to look.
2: The issue of how to approach equality in terms of ensuring equal treatment with respect to the nuanced ways in which women's gender also makes their positions unique is difficult to address. In the past, WAC leaders did not or could not challenge either military men's sexual exploitation of service women or the ranked hierarchy of the military itself. They instead promoted the protection of WACs through the sexual control of service women and officers. However, This so-called protection came at the price of controlling the bodily autonomy of women while failing to hold servicemen and higher-ranking officers accountable for their actions.
1: Bailey's remarks you shed light on the ongoing struggle to address these issues effectively and efficiently to this day. She points out that there has been an overemphasis on centralizing what it means to be a woman in the military and an overplay of physical differences. The end of combat exclusion and the recruitment crisis in the U.S. military really complicates ongoing efforts to ensure gender inclusivity. Addressing these challenges and achieving true gender equality in the military is a complex and ongoing process.
2: ROTC programs have helped advance women in the military by offering leadership positions and education opportunities. In the past, women in the WAC didn't receive any military benefits because even though they were working for the military, they weren't included in the military. We wanted to get Professor Bailey's opinion on what the future of women in the military looks like and her opinion on the role of the ROTC programs. I think that
0: the U.S. military needs to reach out to women. to become a more welcoming and safer place for women. And by safer, I don't mean safer in combat. I mean safer within. Um, As the military faces a massive recruiting crisis across the services, one thing that they keep hearing is female and male members who have served saying to daughters and nieces and students and, you know, other people in their orbit, that they hesitate to recommend joining the military because of the problems of sexual harassment and sexual assault. That is a crisis that has to be addressed. Um, But I think also as we look at a military that is ever less focused on ground combat and, you know, carrying 60, 90-pound packs and, and such, that there are more and more roles that women can play and will play in the military, um, and and that the military leaders need to think along those terms more, and women need to think about what, you know, what they can and will and want to do. Uh, it, I believe it is not equal or just to expect that men can be compelled to serve, men can be compelled to fight and women can't. Um, I think that individuals may well make very different decisions based on their conscience and, and spiritual, religious, ethical beliefs about serving. But I don't think that we should make a distinction based on gender between what we expect of women and what we expect of men in terms of overall service to the nation.
1: The contrast between the opportunities provided by ROTC programs today and the challenges faced by women in the WAC during World War II is quite striking. In the past, women who served in the WAC didn't receive the same military benefits as their male counterparts, despite doing vital work for the military. They were excluded from the military itself until 1943, limiting their access to education and leadership opportunities. The absence of these opportunities as well as social stigmas led to a lot of the issues the army encountered when trying to meet quotas for service women. Lisa Meyer wrote about these factors in his book, Creating G.I. Jane, mentioning that the great disparity in pay and personal freedom between military and civilian women and the wider range of opportunities in the civilian labor force also influenced women's decisions when it came to choosing to enlist or not.
2: Fast forward to today and the landscape for women in the military has evolved significantly, thanks in part to ROTC programs. These programs have become instrumental in advancing women in the military and beyond, Just take a look at our ROTC program here at TCU, where women still make up nearly one-third of cadets and a number of proud women alum attribute the ROTC program as being integral to their education and growth as leaders. Christine Curran Fournier spent four years in TCU's ROTC program while pursuing a nursing degree before she graduated in 1994 and had this to say about her experience. The ROTC program was the best thing about my TCU experience. I was constantly pushed into leadership positions, which built my confidence and gave me skills I would never gain otherwise. I had a career right out of college and was able to live in amazing places like Alaska. Now that I'm a civilian, I work in a fast-paced wound center as part of clinic leadership and love my job.
1: Eddie J. Smith, the enrollment and scholarship official at TCU, explained that both men and women are driven to join the ROTC by the opportunity for education and to serve their country. He said that the ROTC scholarship allows young people to live their dream of going to the college of their choice and serving their country. We also can see how the ROTC has continued to evolve in terms of equality and open up more opportunities for positions in the military for women. Prior to 2015, Women in the military and ROTC were restricted from combat roles, but a reversal from the Pentagon has opened up even more opportunities for women.
2: Additionally, the success of the program has contributed to women showing interest in enlisting into combat branches of the military and pursuing military careers. While low enlistment numbers among women have been an issue for many years in the military, maybe ROTC programs at college campuses can help bridge that gap by addressing the concerns of women's safety against sexual harassment within the military while continuing to provide education and leadership opportunities on campus.
1: This entire experience has really given us a different perspective to think about women in the military and women's rights in general. It has allowed us to better understand the true complexities and depths of this struggle for equality.
2: On the next FrogCast, Walter Flanagan and Brian Kim discuss the Manhattan Project.
1: During one of the deadliest and bloodiest conflicts in human history, a fellow horned frog, Harrison Miller Mosley, participated in the highly secretive and tendentious Manhattan Project, which would change the course of history. With a weapon so deadly and crucial in shaping the geopolitical arena, how did Mosley and other members of the project wrestle with the moral dilemma amongst each other and against the government?
2: Join us next week to find out. TCU. Riff Ram. Riff Ram. Give them
1: hell, TCU.
2: Until next time, TCU. Riff Ram, y'all. TCU.
3: Riff Ram.